Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Psalms, Psalm 51 is today. I want to thank Steve Elworth for helping us kick off our series here for the past two weeks. Unbelievable communicator. Uh, I always enjoy hearing from Steve and, and borrowing from him and stealing from him and all of that stuff. And so I'm so grateful to have him on our team. Um, if I could summarize um, the whole thing this morning, it would be out of 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us and excuse me, forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That would be, be a summary statement. If you don't know this verse, if this is not something that you regularly handle in your memory and the Bible, it's really helpful as, as we will see. Well, that would be the summary. Now, by way of introduction, I just want to say my wife and I like to watch crime uh, shows, you know, where they, where they figure things out. And, and the, you know, the overriding theme in a lot of the shows now are there cameras everywhere. And somehow their tech guy is going to be able to access all the cameras everywhere, including the ring doorbell at your house. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And when there's an incident on this street, they've got, you know, they can triangulate all the cameras and then they can go, we've got proof. Your hand is in the cookie jar and we caught you. And, you know, we, we, we spend about three hours watching you know, knowing where it's going to end up with the gotcha. And uh, we go, oh, we feel good that, you know, things are, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Yeah, that is so nice. A little glass of water. I'll drink it right now. Right? How many people like, th like those shows? No? Yeah, a couple of you. Yeah, I just, because we just, we just, unless you're on the other end, right? Who wants pictures of themselves? Right? Who wants that? Who wants, hey, look, I was looking at your, your ring doorbell and this was happening, you know, as something was going down. What we're going to see today in Psalm 51 is um, a confession of somebody that got caught and then turned to God and said, I'm sorry. And it's a, it's a long journey, and it's a difficult one. So if you're in Psalm 51, there's a little script at the top that gives us the background. It says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I don't know if you know David's story, King David, but this story is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I got to spend a little time there because it is so bad. It's so horrific that it's worth realizing what happened that led to the confrontation that then led to the, to the confession. And so if, if you've never looked there, um, that's where you can go. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Here's the first verse. Kind of sets the stage. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged uh, Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. And there's the problem. David had been pursuing the kingship for a very long time. He was anointed as a teenager, but he would not be placed as king for a long time. And he respected God's anointed Saul, who tried to kill him. He didn't fight back. He, he won battles. He killed Goliath as a young man. 
and he waited and he got he, he was anointed and then appointed as king and then established the city of Jerusalem. And it was just great. But then he relaxed. And now he's on the roof of his palace going, look at this. Look at this. All my hard work. But he's not where he should be. He's not with his men. Men alone are often just easy picking. If I might again point out the men that are here, that are just here for the weekend. I, I applaud you gentlemen for being here, for getting up and going, let me find a church within walking distance. That's, that's commitment. That's commi they don't get any bonus points for this, right? Or do you? No, good. <laughs> All right, so yeah, they're still working. Bankers, they're in the school of banking and come from around the country, right? David is not doing that. He is uh, totally exposed. And he's walking around and he notices off his roof, his neighbor's wife is bathing. She is Bathsheba. The Bible says she's beautiful. He could have and should have turned right then and said, whoa, and walked away. That's not what he did. He's, he put it in park. He stared at her. He lusted. And then he called for her. That's what he's doing. Bathsheba is married to a man named Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, there's a long explanation of the men who would stand with David through thick and thin. They're called his mighty men. Against all odds, those men were with him and they're all listed there. Uriah is one of them. So he is lusting after not only his neighbor's wife, but his good friend's wife. And he sends for her and has her come to him which I would think would be hard to say no when the king says, I want you to come see me. Much like a power differential that often takes place in our current culture, it's happening here. They sleep together. She conceives a child. She comes back and says, knocks on the door and says, hey, listen, I'm pregnant. And he says, oh, oh, snap. And then he goes into cover-up mode. And he sends for, you, for Uriah, who's with Joab, who's on the battlefield and says, hey, why don't you come in? I want to talk to you a little bit. Thinking that while he's home, he would go see his beautiful wife. They would be together. And then David could say, that's your child. Right? You see the strategy? But Uriah doesn't do that. He doesn't go. Here's what Uriah said to David when David said, you didn't go home? Listen to this righteous man. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, king, I will not do such a thing. Wow. David's second attempt to cover up is he liquored him up. He got him drunk. I'll get you in an altered state and then you'll stumble home. He still doesn't do it. Then his third attempt to cover up sin becomes really, really bad. He calls his second in command, the commander of his armies, his number two, Joab. And he says, hey, Joab, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. And when the battle is in its hottest, I want you to retreat and leave him exposed. To which Joab said, you know he's going to die. That's what I want you to do. That's what Joab did as a faithful, now complicit, 
follower of his king, Uriah, dies. And when the time of mourning had passed, David married Bathsheba. And sin that we try to cover up grows like mushroom and manure in the dark. That's what happens. We have to expose sin. But that's not what David did. 2 Samuel 11.27 says it perfectly. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Displeased the Lord. And so what did God do? In His mercy, He sent a prophet to confront David. If you're a king here, you need a prophet. No one here is a king. So we just need a good friend that's been given permission to speak honestly into our life. Do you have such a friend? Do you want such a friend? We tend to want them if we want to stay humble and honest and live with fidelity in our marriage and integrity in our business. We all need them. We all need someone like that. If you don't have anybody in your life like that and you want someone like that, it starts with you getting your heart open to something like that. We would love to talk to you about it. It's part of what we do in trying to put together groups of men and women. So there's accountability in life. A man without accountability is a man with an accident waiting to happen. And don't men that are married, don't burden your wife with that job. It's a brother's job. It's not a wife's job. And he doesn't have it. And so David sends uh, Nathan. And Nathan confronts him with all the camera angles. <laughs> he, that's not what he does. But I mean, he's, he, he really gets it. There's no way out. He gets David. And, and then he says what the Lord says. To, he says in verse 9 of chapter 12, Hey, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife as your own and killed him with the sword of the Amorites. David, David knew the commands, the Ten Commandments. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't, uh, don't murder. Don't covet any of your neighbor's stuff from their new zero-turn lawnmower to their wife. You don't want any of it. So he confronted him, and it broke David. It doesn't always break people. Sometimes you'll confront somebody, and they'll just deny, 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 deny. It is a proven uh, tactic that many people still employ. And then David says in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David said to uh, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Whoa. That's good to remember as we get into Psalm 51. And so I want to say, what, what, is it, what do I mean when I say he confesses? To confess something to God is to agree with him. So if I'm confessing a sin, I'm agreeing with him that I've, I've messed up. I haven't lived up to the standard. I've disappointed you, right? And so confession is, is a relational thing. If you drive your car without oil in it and you push it really hard and the engine blows up, you don't get out and weep and say, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings and I busted your, your engine. We don't do that, right? But with relationships, we do. We apologize. We, sometimes we do. Often when we're confronted, we do. And David was confronted and he agreed with God that he had sinned. So, in our outline, we have this confession starts and is based on a correct view of God. 
David knew without question that God was pure and holy and just. He knew all these things. And many Christians know this, but David also knew that God was merciful and slow to anger and gracious. So verses 1 and 2 kind of give us an overview. Have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. What a bold statement. Based on who you are, based on your um, unfailing love. A Hebrew word is hesed. It's the, it's the closest thing we have to grace in the Old Testament. Based on your merciful heart, I'm appealing to you. Would you clean, forgive me? Would you clean up this mess that I made? And so I have to stop and say, you may know that God is holy. You may know that he is righteous. But even Christians may not know how merciful he is. And how kind he is. And like a loving, caring father that you may never have had, he desires to hear from you to offer forgiveness and to help you move along. So all of his sorrow, all of his, his concerns are wrapped up in that. And how do I know that God loves you? Because he sent his son to die for you. That's what we learn in the New Testament. He, he, he went way out of his way to demonstrate his love for us. David knew this. And he also knew that even though his sin was great, God's grace was greater. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's just, it's unfathomable to think that God is that kind. And could I bring to him the wrong that I have done? David was confronted after their child was born, which means it's been at least nine months. Some people say it had been a year. So he had been sitting on this horrible set of sins, being an adulterer, being a murderer, and being a king that made others complicit in his wrong for months. And that child would die. He would have another one with Bathsheba, but that child would die. And he would have great sorrow. He's carrying that around all that time. And I would say that probably some of you carry around a lot that you could confess if we understood that God is merciful. The second thing is confession requires a correct view of sin. A correct view of sin, right? A clear view of sin is necessary for confession. Do we understand the offense, the offense that we have uh, committed and to whom we've committed it? Both are true. So if you're married here today and you have had opportunities to say you're sorry to your wife, you might have had a similar conversation to the one I've had where she quickly retorts, I appreciate the apology, but I'm not sure you know what you're saying you're sorry for. <laughs> Anybody had that conversation? There's variations of it. 
I hear you, but I don't believe you. She's asking a very valid question. You're trying to rush through this. You're trying to get on the other side. You're trying to fix it. But I'm not convinced I know what you're apologizing for. And I'm not convinced you know what you're apologizing for. <laughs> In our communion service at 745, <laughs> one of the husbands says, I carry a pocket full of these cards and I use them whenever necessary. It has five boxes on it, check boxes, with five statements. When I get into a stuck place with my wife, I just check off the ones that apply and I hand it to her. <laughs> Here they are. Here are the five. You were right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'll try not to do it again. I said, can I, can I have that? <laughs> that might come in handy. See, you thought it was going to be something else, huh? It's raw honesty. I said, do you check more than one? Usually, yes. <laughs> David knew. He knew his sin. Look at the words he uses in verses 3 through 6. For I... I know my transgressions and my sin. It's always, not some of the time, it's always before me against you. Only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I am guilty. Surely, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Three different words are used of sin. A transgression is when you knowingly step over the line and go, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not going to keep the rule. I'm going to step over the line. Iniquities are when you see a rule and you twist it, you bend it, you compromise it, and a sin is missing the mark, missing the standard of which God says, a commitment, a covenant. And those are the three words he uses. And then all of the pronouns, I, my, me, he knows he's the one who sinned. And he starts by saying, and it's against you only. Well, obviously it wasn't. It was against Bathsheba. It was against Uriah. It was against Joab. It was against his men. It had a filtering effect, but it starts with God. I see you clearly, and now I see myself clearly, and I have nowhere to go. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't point fingers. He doesn't deny it. He owns it. That's what Real confession will include owning it and repenting of it, right? Repentance is not a, a dead knowledge of sin committed. It's a living, ever-present, often painful recognition. It's always before me. Always before me. And then he goes further and he says, not only did I do things wrong, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. As I like to say it, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Or to say it another way, my sneezing doesn't give me a cold. My cold causes me to sneeze. And so he just says it real plainly. Surely 
I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time of my mother conceived me. The conception and the sex that got there is not the sin as it's been taught in church history. It's the, it's the reality that if you were to take a sonogram and look, David's saying, if you could look in the womb, what you would see is a person with a problem. And what you would also see is that you desired faithfulness even in the womb and you even taught me right from wrong. The problem is I can't do what you've asked me to do. I know right from wrong, but I can't do it. I need you. I need you to um, uh, uh, work in, change me as we'll see. And I would go further and say that statements like this show us they indicate that a preborn baby is not just uh, fetal tissue. It's a spiritual being in the womb. So first, we have to have a, we're going to confess, we have to have a right view of God, holy and compassionate and gracious. We have to have a right view of sin, missing the mark, twisting the rules, overstepping the boundaries that we do that is an affront to God first, then impacts others. We have to, and then acknowledging that there's something broken deep within us. And then confession means prayer for forgiveness and transformation. Not just forgiveness, but forgiveness and transformation. Verses 7 to 9. It says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He takes a picture of priests out of the Old Testament that would take a hyssop plant. It's a flowery lot of leaves. Dip it in blood. First time it's seen is at the Passover where they put it over their doors and they would see it in cleansing homes and it would be something a, a priest would do to cleanse something with the blood of a sacrificed animal. That's what's going on. Why a sacrifice animal? Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Something's got to pay. And David is saying, cleanse me like that. And then what he says next is so important. I will be clean. I will be clean. When God cleanses you, you're clean. Question. What sins have you confessed and God has cleansed you from, but you still think that you're dirty? What are you not believing about God's forgiveness? Christ entered the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of calves or the blood of goats, but with his own blood. He made a way for us to know that we're forgiven. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. You might need to preach the gospel to yourself and say, do I believe it? Do I believe it? In verse 8, He's really talking about absolution when a priest would say, you're forgiven. When that happens, there's joy and gladness and the bones, his, his psychological makeup now rejoices. That's what he's doing. He's receiving that. That's what he's saying. And then he just says it straight up. Hide your face from my sins 
And would you please blot out my iniquity? That's the cry for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? If you forgive me, I will be clean. Have you been forgiven of something, as I asked, and have a hard time believing it? I have. I have. There are many Christians who walk with a limp because of sin in their life, but they also walk with a smile on their face because the God of the universe was merciful to them. And they see it that way. So he needs spiritual enablement to believe and receive and live in that forgiveness. Verse 10, created me a pure heart. I need, to, I, need to, I need you to transform this heart of mine. I need you to do a deep work in me. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. A spirit that allows me to get up and keep going and say, He cleansed me. I'm clean. That's what he's saying. Question. Where do you need God to renew your spirit so that you can regard yourself as purged from sin and white as snow? And have you thought about asking for the next thing? Do you see how bold David is? How broken David is? God, would you please forgive me? And I know me. If you do forgive me, I'm going to still need you to transform my life. I have got to have your help from beginning to end. I don't just do bad things. I started out separated from you and you need to bring it all together. Let me ask a different question. Do you have a memory, a time in your life where you were on fire for Jesus and sin took you out and you've just been hiding? And does it sound too bold to say you need to step into the forgiveness of God? Again, you may walk with a limp, but can it not be a testimony to what God has done? I struggle with Christians that neither confess their sin or once they have believed that they have been forgiven. Newsflash. Jesus came to die for sin. Yesterday's, today's, and tomorrow's. If you're trusting him for yesterday, why can't you trust him for today? And why will you not trust him for tomorrow? I'll tell you why. It's your pride. It's your pride. I've really blown it. Yes, it's never good to compare, but these are, these are, <laughs> these are top shelf sins here, right? He didn't seduce his neighbor's wife. He commanded her. Then he killed her husband. Those are pretty, pretty serious. Cast me not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for special empowerment to prophets and to priests and to kings. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. He's not talking about removing the Holy Spirit like it would have to be removed from a Christian. He's saying, I'm the king and I'd like to continue to serve as such. Don't remove me from your presence. Don't take that anointing that you have on my life to be king away from me. And then he says this, and this may be where you are today. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to keep going, to sustain me. 
What area, what issue do you need strength in today to sustain you? Could you ask for it? God, I need your strength. I need you to transform me. I need you to work deeply in me. What sin have you confessed but still feel super tempted to go back to? God, I need you to sustain me. I need you to work in my life. I need you to start to change me. So when I'm tempted by that, I'm not, I don't exit when I see a liquor bottle on a sign. I need you to change that in me. Right? That's what he's praying for. It's so raw. It's so real. It's so open. He's just pouring himself out and admitting his helplessness. Confession means we have a correct understanding of God. It means we have uh, a correct view of sin. It means that we pray for forgiveness and transformation. And ultimately, it leads. It leads to praise from a repentant and a contrite heart. Verse 13. Then I will, when you forgive me, then I'll be in a position to teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are my God. You are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. And my mouth will declare your praise. When I am forgiven, and I've got my limp, I'm going to gladly approach people that are destroying their life. And I'm going to say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He's redeemed me. He forgave me. He cleansed me. Do you know how clean I am? I'm clean. I'm clean, and, and that's available for you too. Yeah, well, Kevin, what about your limp? <laughs> I'm still on my feet, praise God. He could have just ended everything right then and would have been justified to do it. He is good all the time. His timing is never early or late. He hasn't abandoned his throne. He's not unaware. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, blood guilt, killing innocent people, which David had spent his whole life avoiding. And in an effort to cover up sin, and this always happens when we cover it up, institutionally or personally, it just grows and gets worse. You are, uh, you who are God, my Savior. I need salvation. I need you to deliver me from the weight of this. All of this spilled over into other people's lives. And I'm going to declare your praise. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my mouth, Lord, my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So when there's a, an act of forgiveness, when there is a, an opportunity to celebrate, people would bring a calf or a or a goat, and they would sacrifice it and burn it, and they would share the, the, uh, the meat with friends and, and the priest. In verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. 
I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to go through religious activities. I'm not going to bring animals and play a game. I'm going to bring a broken heart to you and offer it to you and to the people I serve. A humble and broken heart. There was a televangelist years ago who went to jail. We don't need to put out names here. And while in jail, he wrote what I thought would be an excellent book. I judged the book by the title. The title was, I Was Wrong. And then there were 800 pages. Do you need 800 pages? I don't think so. That's all it could have said. That's, that, could have been, that could have been it. Broken and contrite. God doesn't reject a humble, broken person who knows they can bring nothing. That's the person that's poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's them. God, I need your help. I need to be forgiven. And then I need help believing that I'm forgiven. And then I need help getting up off the ground because I'm forgiven. And then I need help getting on with my life and not being tempted again. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I'm totally at your mercy. That's where David is. I learn to worship when I remove my pride and I have nothing. Nothing. We bring so much of ourselves. We bring so much of our achievement. We bring so much of our understanding and our wealth. And David's like, I got nothing. I bring nothing. I bring a broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God won't despise. He knows. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces finds mercy. That's what's happening to David. He's positioning himself to be in a position of prosper prospering. That's actually a word. It's often translated that. You do not delight. You won't despise a broken heart. He's in a position to prosper because he's not carrying the weight of his sin anymore. And that not only is he transformed and then um, brings transformation, his worship is transformed and his leadership is transformed. Verses 18 and 19. May it please you to prosper Zion. That's Jerusalem. To build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Once I can get right with God, then I can lead in my home rightly. Then I can lead in my, be in relationship rightly. Then I can lead the church rightly. Then I can lead the business rightly. Then I can lead the country rightly, whatever it is that you're leading. That's where he is there. So it, it, it comes full circle. It's totally resolved. He has a correct view of God. He has a correct view of sin. He prays for forgiveness and transformation. And then it ends with him praising God from a repentant and contrite heart. That's quite the journey. We end with this statement. Confession offers deliverance, not destruction. 
forgiveness, not condemnation. So I have a couple questions to close our time out. First, to the Christian who has confessed and still lives under the shadow of their sin. Maybe it's the transformation you need to pray for. Would you, would you restore the joy of my salvation, Lord? Would you create in me a clean heart? Would you create a steadfast spirit in me so I can keep moving and keep shining for you with my limp and a broken and contrite heart? Maybe that's what you need to pray. Maybe you need to confess Jesus is Lord. Confess is agreeing. Agree that Jesus is Lord and say, I need to bow the knee of my heart and receive Christ. Maybe, maybe there's unconfessed sin in your heart that you just need to talk to the Lord about. I would say, <coughs> remember, a king needed a prophet. That if you've got something heavy, find the appropriate person to also share with, right? The appropriate person, not just anybody. Maybe that, if you don't know anybody, I'd be glad to talk to you. What I'm asking you to do is, is large. I understand that. It's not just, we'll go to church, we'll get finished, we'll get lunch, we'll go home, we'll start the holiday. <laughs> Boom! You go to church, and I want you to get, get busy and get honest. It took David a year with confrontation. What have you been carrying for more than a year that you need to unburden and get off your chest? God is merciful and kind. So we've asked the, uh, the worship team to lead us in a song, Run to the Father. They can come up here now as we transition if you're in earshot. And um, I'm going to pray for you. And they're going to ask you just to, to pray and to think and to reflect on what you've heard today in this psalm. Um, there is a companion psalm of this, which is Psalm 32. You can read that one too if you need to spend some time doing this. But let me, let me pray for us and then they're going to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to respond while they play the kind of the first stanza. And then they're going to ask you to join in as you can, where you can. Let's pray together. Father God, we have, um, we have grateful hearts that we can approach you with confidence that you will hear us and that you will forgive us based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and how he rose from the dead. And yet we get scared we're embarrassed. We're afraid to admit what we're capable of when left to ourselves and how we, we seek to cover up. Lord, I pray for those here today that have asked for forgiveness and yet struggle with believing it's true. Would you bring a freshness to their heart based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that they may walk in newness of life with a firmness of assurance that you're good and that you've forgiven them. Lord, I pray for those here today that need to trust you. May they bow the knee of their heart and just say, Lord Jesus, today I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. But Lord, all of us have something that we can bring to you in a moment of humility. I pray that we would do that now in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.